your love, your heart, your goodness. Father, we're blessed that you reveal your will. And that as that, Lord, we do simply acknowledge that you're Lord, we're not. We're your servants. Samuel teaches today that obedience is better than sacrifice. How true is that? How we all know that. To walk faithfully in love and grace. To walk in the way that you've called us to walk is, is so perfect and right. And you're glorifying. But it is about obedience, Lord. It is truly about that. And we're going to fail. And so we're so grateful, Lord, that we have your son, his payment on the cross for our sins for when we do fail. But it's our desire, Lord, to be honest, upfront, open about successes, about failures. And when it's a success, Lord, it's yours. When it's a failure, it's ours. That's the way it should always be. Now, we can rejoice with you in your successes. We can rejoice. It's just we give you glory every time something goes well and right. And so, Father, we just ask that once again, as we seek to look at the the life of Saul and the, the teachings of Samuel, that you would instruct us of your heart, knit us to an understanding of your will. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to be looking at this portion here this evening. And so we've already been to that point where eventually um, Saul has had this victory over the, the Philistines, not because of him, not because of his spirituality, but because of Jonathan. Having that on his heart, man, who knows whether God could save us by few or by many. Let's just go. And him and his armor bearer went and they did an amazing routing of the Philistines. And eventually what we begin to see is there was this point where Saul, through that, had begun to, in a sense, take credit. Jonathan had taken on the garrison and the word got out, Saul took on the garrison. As Jonathan is routing, Saul goes and he makes this, this curse and and where he put the people in distress, and he simply said, well, cursed is the man who, who eats anything until evening. Till, and he says this, till I have had taken vengeance on my enemies, none of the people tasted food, verse 24 of chapter 14. And, and, and Saul has taken a lot of credit for a lot of things. And what we're going to see here is that he is going to, in this passage, step away from any responsibility, but then in the next breath, take full credit for what is good, but step away from anything that went bad. And I think it's important to look at just this portion of Scripture in its entirety, but really as a foundation of what God is wanting to teach us when it comes to true obedience. So it opens up. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Verse 3, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Samuel comes to Saul and opens up with a really good direction to what this command is going to be. Initially, he said, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice, heed the words of the Lord. So in other words, that if my word was good before, it's still good. 
So in other words, when I give you this command, understand that as true as what I, I told you earlier, as far as God giving you can over, you know, he's given you that the, the, the nation Israel to be the steward, to be the king, obey God. This word here is just as important. And so he says, now, now heed the voice of the words of the Lord. And so it's just a really good way of saying, listen, if, if my word was true before, it's just as true now. So there should be an awakening to Saul as far as what it is that Samuel's about to say. And now Samuel speaks forth those words, thus says the Lord of hosts. You can call it the Lord of armies, the, the Lord of angels, the Lord of the stars, but it's a Lord of hosts. And, and so understand, usually this term in this context means he's the Lord of armies. They're, they're God's armies. And so as Saul is going to raise up the people, Keep in mind that he's still the commander of God's army. This is what here Samuel is trying to impress upon him. And he says, thus says the Lord of hosts. And note this, God says, I will punish Amalek. I want you to understand that if you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, get those four words down. I will punish Amalek. This is God's work. This is what God is going to do. He is going to punish Amalek. So you have to understand that right here in these first four words of the second verse, when the, God says the first words, I will punish, I will punish. And he says, I'm going to be the one to punish Amalek. Now, keep in mind that this is God's battle. This is God's will. This is God's punishment. He didn't say, you need to punish Amalek. He didn't say that. He said, this is me. I will punish. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use you. You're going to become my instrument. You're going to become my vessel. You're going to be the steward. You're going to be the commander of this operation. But I will punish Amalek. So do you understand that God says, this is my will, my purpose, my thought. You're going to do what I've asked you to do. This isn't left to interpretation. This isn't you doing the punishment. This is me. So anything that you veer from what this is, you're veering from me. I will punish Amalek. And so I don't know if you're familiar with who Amalek is. There's a portion, a couple of portions. I just want to kind of give you the background of who Amalek is, just so you can understand why God is coming to this point and saying, listen, I'm going to be the one to punish Amalek. The first thing that you should realize is that Amalek was akin to Israel. Remember now that, that Joseph had a twin brother, the older brother Esau. And in Genesis chapter 36, what we begin to see is this. There is a portion of Scripture in verse 12 that makes this statement. Now, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. So, understand now. We have his son, which is Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So, we understand that Amalek is the grandson of Esau. So Esau being the, the brother of Jacob who would become Israel, they're brothers now, they're twins, and so you should be family. And as family, you should be taking care of family. But that's not what Amalek does. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 17, there's a portion of Scripture where it's the first time that, that we actually see Joshua is mentioned in all the Scripture. 
but it opens up in Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So we begin to see here that, that Amalek comes and he fights with Israel. In just a moment, we'll look at another passage to kind of show you just how dastardly he was. But they've come to do battle. Now, initially, they were kind of picking off the rear wings. They were picking off the weak ones. They were picking off, and then they, all of a sudden, like they were emboldened, let's go to battle. And so we see that, that they came and they fought with Israel in Exodus 17, verse 8. So Moses said to Joshua, choose some men and go out with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with a rod of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one side and on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. As we look to this, I want you to know that this is an incredible battle, the first battle that Joshua faces. And so in verse 14 of Exodus 17, the Lord said to Moses, write this for memorial in a book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. God says, I'm going to take care of Amalek. I'm going to blot out the remembrance of Amalek. Now, the amazing thing is this. When was the last time in the news that you heard of an Amalekite doing anything? Guess what God has done? He's blot out the remembrance. And so he made a statement to Joshua. He says, I want you to let Joshua know that I'm going to be the one to blot out the, the, the very memory of Amalek. And so as he does so, we see that Joshua now comes to this point where he realized that I didn't win the battle. Every time Moses held up his hands, I was victorious. When his hands went down, I wasn't. And it wasn't until they put the, the, the rock under Moses and Aaron and her held up his hands with the rod that then I had victory. And Joshua learned something, that the battle itself was spiritual. The battle wasn't a physical battle. The battle is a spiritual battle. And as we understand this, then we begin to see, now I grasp what here what Saul is going to miss. He thinks it's a physical battle. He thinks it's his battle, and it's not his. It's not his battle. It is God's. And so understand what's about to happen is that within this point, God says, I'm going to be the one to take out the Amalekites. Now, a passage that I want to share with you found in Deuteronomy 25. In verses 17 through 19, it makes this declaration, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. This was Amalek. He chose to hit the weak ones, the ones who were tired, the ones who were weary, the ones who were straggling. He would attack from the back. He wouldn't attack from the front. It wasn't a, a brave attack. It was from the back, and he was picking off the weak ones. He was picking off those that were stragglers. He was picking off the ones that were tired and weary, and it made a statement that he didn't fear God. Well, in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 25, Therefore it shall be, 
when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So, God has made a statement. He's let us know who the Amalekites are. They are family to Israel. And as family, you should be ministering to them, not attacking them, but they didn't fear God. They didn't know God. And so we see that as soldiers, they were cowards initially. They then went to battle. And then through the spiritual battle, Joshua was victorious. But God said, I'm not done with them. I am going to wipe them out for what they did to my children. I am going to wipe them out. And so God chooses now to use Saul to do the work. He's asked Saul. And keep in mind, as he goes to Saul, he says, I will punish Amalek. This is my will, my word, not up for interpretation. Well, as we recognize that he's going to be the one to um, attack, something that I want to share with you, that eventually when we get into 2 Samuel, you'll grasp, but I want to share a portion of it tonight. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, the very beginning of 2 Samuel, we understand of the death of, of Saul, but it says this, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 5, So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Good question. This guy comes up and he says, listen, Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. He says, how do you know they're dead? Verse 6, the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and the horsemen followed after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. <laughs> oh my goodness. And so he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. Absolutely amazing that here Saul was called to wipe out the Amalekites. Utterly. This is what God said. Utterly. Look at verse 3 again in our text of 1 Samuel 15. Go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Wipe them out and, and spare nothing because, verse 2, God says, I will punish Amalek. This is my work that I'm going to do. Well, verse 4, so Saul gathered the people together, numbered them, and tell them 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. So he gathers an army of 210,000 warriors. As he gets these 210,000, Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Now, where he is, as you understand, or as we will understand in just a little bit, that they they literally... Has, are at this point where they're just to the east of Egypt. So they're there in the desert of Shur. So where they come, they actually go to the city of Amalek, 
and they're waiting in the valley. So they just don't go and attack, but now they're strategically placed. And verse 6, Saul gets word to the Kenites, go and depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. For those of you that are aware of what the Kenites are or may not be aware, the Kenites was um, Moses' father-in-law. That's who the Kenites were. So, so they were, in a sense, a married in relation. That's who they were. And within that relation, we begin to see this is where Moses begins to, to let them know, hey, um, I want the Kenites to actually be good. I don't want them to have any issues. I want them saved. So as he goes and he then does an attack among the, the Kenites, there's a passage that I want to share with you. Jot it down if you're a note taker, but it makes this declaration because in Numbers chapter 24, Moses speaks of both Amalek and the Kenites. And it's a prophecy that actually comes forth from Balaam, the one who was called by Balak to curse Israel. But in Numbers chapter 24, he gives two oracles. oracles, And he says in verse 20, Then he looked on Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. Note this, Amalek's gone. And then he looked on the Kenites, and he took up an oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long shall Assure carry you away captive? So he lets them know that, that I'm going to establish you, but I'm not going to be establishing the Amalekites. And so, Within this, there are going to be battles. There are going to be issues with them. He's honest as far as what's going to be happening. And keep in mind, as Israel was taken captive, so were the Kenites. But Saul is now not wanting to do damage to someone that was kind to the nation of Israel. So he goes to the Kenites. He gets words to them. He says, hey, you guys got to depart. Get, get, get away from the Amalekites because I'm about to do some damage to them. Well, after they departed... At the end of verse 6, the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. So, as you guys would suspect that I have a special interest in finding out where Havilah is, and I can tell you right now that Havilah is sleeping with her mother there in Virginia as, as our newest granddaughter, but the city Havilah, where's that? Um, it's interesting that there really isn't a full understanding of where it is. The, the scholars are all over the map. However, what they've come to believe is this. There's probably more than one Havilah city mentioned in Scripture. There'd be one that would be up by Iraq, and there's another one that's down here by Egypt. And so... We understand that what he does is he attacks the Amalekites from a region, Havilah, and he takes him into another region all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. Now, Shur is the wilderness of Shur. That's where the children of Israel wandered for the 40 years. And so they take him and they attack him 
and they, they, they're pushing them eastward, and that's what we see that here Saul is doing. Well, in verse 8, it says, He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So what Saul has done, and I want you to make note of this, Saul has taken the best of the people, and he's kept him alive. Just, just make note of that. He's taken the best of the people. He's taken the king of the people, him he kept alive. Now, it was interesting that God, when he made that statement back in verse 2, he said, I will punish Amalek. And then he says this, go and attack Amalek, verse 3, utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman. He didn't say anything about sparing any people. But what's interesting is this, and I want you to make note of this, that what Saul has chosen to do is to spare the best of the people as he sees it in his eyes. Why is that dangerous? When he spares the best of the people, it says now in verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. I want you to understand that when, when God is making that statement back in verse 2, I will punish Amalek. What does God see about everything there in Amalek? Both of the, the men, the women, the infants, the nursing children, the oxen, the sheep, the camel, the donkey. What God is making a statement, he says, everything to me is despised. Everything to me is worthless. That's what God's saying. And amazingly, what happens is Saul begins to say, you know what, I want to spare the best because I want this guy paraded. I don't want to just say that, oh, he died. I want everyone to know I've conquered this man. I want to bring him as a trophy. You understand that the God didn't say, you get a trophy because this is mine. You are my vessel. And, and there isn't a, a, a trophy. There isn't anything that you can take to bring glory in this. Why? Because God wants everything wiped out and, and there's nothing good in this. But keep in mind that God doesn't want a trophy. He says, look at this, look at this, this one here, this evil, this wicked is still alive. He says, no, the wicked has to perish. And God is not willing that, that any should, should perish, but all should come to repentance. You understand God's heart. He doesn't want them to perish, but they need to perish. And it was his will. It was his battle. I will punish Amalek, God said to Saul. You are going to be my vessel. Well, after verse 8, he keeps the best. Guess what happens? The children, of the children of Israel become imitators of their king. Oh, we keep the best? I like this. Yeah, here's here. this is the best ox. This is the best sheep. Let's keep all the best. If Saul can keep the best, we can keep the best. Do you understand how important it is that as leadership in anything, that God calls you to do what? Well, if you want to lead, lead in obedience. Don't question God. Don't, don't, don't make your own rules. Glorify God. 
And this is what's so important, because if you think that you can now change God's point of view into your point of view, that you say, oh, you know what? It's just as good. No, it's not. Doing what you want to do is not just as good as what God called you to do. And so what he's doing is the people are right now, because he spared the best, they are going to spare the best. And so Saul and the people spared Agag. I want to share with you a passage. And and the reason I want to share it with you is because it just absolutely intrigues me. We understand that he was supposed to destroy Agag the king, but he spared Agag the king. And then when you scroll in the Old Testament and you get to the book of Esther, there are some interesting characters that are there. One of them is by the name of Haman, and he's the antagonist. Now, amazingly, and I just want to share with you one verse that deals with Haman in Esther. Chapter 3, verse 1 makes a statement. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, who advanced him and set him above all the princes who were with him. Do you understand? He's an Agagite. He is a descendant of Agag. Absolutely amazing. They're still there. Even at the time of Esther, there's still these remnants of the Amalekites, this one here being an actual descendant of the king. But as we look to this, I want you to understand this incomplete obedience that has been happening. Saul initiates it by sparing the best of all the people. And then the people then take his, what he showed them was great. They begin to imitate him by keeping the best of the sheep. So in verse 9, when it says, So Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. It's interesting, when you see Saul and the people spared Agag, what we understand is, according to verse 7 and 8, verse 7 says, and Saul attacked the Amalekites. Verse 8 said, he, referring to Saul, also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Saul was the one who kept the king alive. The people then, along with Saul, kept all the best of the animals alive. And it says this, they were unwilling to utterly destroy them. Let me give you another way to to point this out. They were unwilling to obey. That's what they were unwilling to do. They said, well, we, we don't want to destroy this. We want some kind of trophies for what we're doing. And so, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, God speaking, verse 11, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel's interceding. Samuel is trying to, you know, make things right. Lord, change his heart. And God's saying, his heart's up to him to change, and he won't. And so what God comes up and he says, I, I greatly regret. When, when God says something like, I greatly regret, keep in mind that God already knew that he had a king. He already knew that he had a king after his own heart. But he knew the people wanted a king, so he said, I'm going to give you the king that you want, and I'm going to show you what a mess it is. 
Because keep in mind, you don't need a king. And if you are going to have a king, let me give you one that's after my own heart. Because keep in mind, guess what? Hey, I brought you out of Egypt and you didn't have a king. I brought you to the wilderness, you didn't have a king. I brought you into the promised land, you didn't have a king. How did God do that without giving them a king? Because he raised up leaders. But they were leaders that always drew the people back to him. And so we recognize what's happening is this. When God says, I greatly regret, in a sense what he's doing is this. He's trying to impress to us that because God's heart is so far beyond our understanding, he gives us a little taste of what a human emotion is. So God says, understand this aspect of my heart, that there is a grieving. Now, the the grieving is because I set up the king that you wanted. I gave you what you wanted. And I knew all, all the whole time that what you wanted wasn't good. And I regretted, I, I, I'm, I'm hurting because you guys are thinking you need this king and you've rejected me the whole time. And now you're getting this. And so he, he makes this statement to, to Samuel. He says, I, I regret that I set up Saul. He has turned his back from following me. That's a huge statement. He is not following me. And you're saying, well, wait a second. He is mostly, isn't he? No, <laughs> no, he's not. He's following a direction, but he's not following everything. Keep in mind, as a Christian, there are some things that we have innately in us that we were, in a sense, born with a personality. Some of us are, are very giving. Some of us are very kind. Some of us are very gracious. And we all have certain things about us that we would consider natural. I don't have to work on it. I'm just kind of naturally that way. And we have certain giftings that God has given us, put in our personality, and made it part of our makeup. And when God's word says, I want you to be kind, you're like, yeah, that's easy enough. I, I want you to bless. That's easy enough. And it is something that we would just very naturally do. But here's the rub. When God's word tells you to do something that is against what you normally do, now what do you do? See, it's easy enough to say, oh, I'm listening to God. I'm listening to God. No, you're, you're just doing what is your nature. You're doing what he's put in you already. You're not really being obedient to God. I mean, you are, but, but whether he called you or not, you'd be doing this. But here's the thing. When he calls you to do something and you desire to do something else, when he calls you to forsake a sin completely and you forsake it mostly, do you understand where you say, well, I'm, I'm going to give most of it up No, God talks about the sin. He says, utterly destroy it in your life. Get rid of it. Like, I get rid of it mostly. I just bring Agag back every couple of weeks. You know, it's, and then I get rid of him again. Now, certain parts, when God says, I want you to not look at cost, I want you to not look at glory, just simply get rid of it. If your eye, right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right foot offends you, cut it off. We looked at last Sunday, twice in the book of Matthew, Jesus makes that statement. If it offends you, cut it off. Twice he says it. And if he says it twice, he really means for us to take a look at these truths. But what happens is this. God said he has turned his back from following me. It's one of those things where he's following him some ways, but in some ways he's not. And so are you fully committed to following the Lord or are you mostly committed to following the Lord? You can't have two masters. 
Because if you have you and God as a master, you're going to hate one, love the other. You're going to follow one, you're going to despise the other. And he says, listen, he's turned his back from following me. And then he gives you the understanding why. He has not performed my commandments. He just hasn't performed them. He's not doing what I called him to do. And I think it's one of those areas where, you know, God gives us commandments. Now, keep in mind, when he gives us a commandment, he gave us 10 of them, 10 commandments. They weren't the 10 suggestions, they were the 10 commandments, but all of them boiled down to two, to two things. What? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, strength, and what? And then love your neighbor as yourself. All of the commandments boiled down to two. Love God, love people. And that made it pretty easy. And as he has that understanding that all the commandments boil down to love, eventually Jesus will come and he'll make a statement in John chapter 15. He declares this, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. He says, if you're keeping my commandments, you abide in my love. And then in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He gives it a qualifier. Not just love as you think love should be, but you love as I have demonstrated. This is what Jesus teaches. And as he teaches love as he's demonstrated, now all of a sudden we realize why God in verse 11 says he's turned his back from following me. And then he says this, he has not performed my commandments. And, and, and God says, why? Because this is my battle, my punishment of Amalek. You need to utterly destroy them, wipe everything out. There is nothing that is good. There is nothing that's a trophy. Everything is despised and worthless. I don't want you to think that there's a part of this putrid sin that I'm judging in these people that is good. Everything has to go. And if you think, well, most of it has to go, how often do Christians do this about their sin? Well, most of it's gone. I'm better than I was. Can I stop now? No, no, you... Listen to the Lord. And I think it's so important that what we see here is this. Samuel has the same heart as God. God was grieved. And so we see where God said in verse 11, I greatly regret. What does it happen at the end of verse 11? It grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. He's interceding. He's hoping that something could be different. Well, verse 12, he kind of gets a rude awakening. In verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. It was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Amazingly, that Saul was so impressed with what he did, he said, let me make a monument to me and this great victory that I've done and absolutely, we begin to see here a little bit of Saul's heart or Samuel's or Saul's heart. Because as he comes up, he went to Carmel and he set up a monument, not for God, not for God's glory, but for his glory. Again, look at what I've done. And so in verse 13, Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, now, keep in mind how positive he is 
that he's done everything that God said. And not only has he made a monument to himself, but Samuel should make another monument to him because he'd done what God had said. And as he does so, I want you to understand that Samuel says in verse 4, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Why is it? Why is it I'm hearing the bleeding of the sheep? I'm hearing the lowing of the oxen. Years ago, God kind of gave me a word for this, that the sheep went bad, and the oxen went move. Bad move, Saul. And that's exactly what's happening. They're, they're all just making the statement, bad move, and, and all of a sudden, he's so proud of what he did, and, and Samuel says, aren't you hearing? Bad move. Wrong. He says, what is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Remember now, God said, I will punish Amalek. This is my battle, my punishment. I want you to utterly destroy all the people, the oxen, the sheep, the camel, and the donkeys. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing this? And Saul said, understand this, they, not we, knows who he's throwing under the bus now. Make a note, it's highlighted, underlined, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Do you understand? He's not taking any responsibility for that. And he said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. No, no, I want you to understand this, this whole thing. He said, they kept them, but we destroyed them. See, I was part of the obedience. They just kind of did their own thing. It's amazing he takes no responsibility for him being the initiator of, let's keep the best. No understanding that he initiated what they were doing. He didn't correct them. He didn't lead them. And so at this point, just notice his heart and how he throws the people under the bus, but he elevates himself. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. I want you to make one other note here. He said the people have wanted, they spared them to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Not the Lord my God, not the Lord our God, but the Lord your God. There's a distance, and he's not getting it right now. And so he makes a statement, and the rest, we, and I was part of all the obedience there, 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 Samuel, we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. Just stop talking. Be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And so what does Saul do? He said, speak on. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone tells me to be quiet, you don't say, you may now speak. No, no, you, you stay quiet, but he doesn't. He has this air of authority where he feels he's done nothing wrong still. And he says, well, speak on. And Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, when you're not the the, the head of the tribes of Israel, did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now keep in mind, there was a point where he was little in his own eyes. Remember there 
In, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21, where Saul answered, said, Am I not a Benjamite, the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe? So he recognized at one point we were nothing. We weren't a whole lot. We were, I'm just the smallest thing. And then when he was anointed king, remember there back in chapter 10, verse 22, therefore they inquired of the Lord because they couldn't find him. They sought him. They could be found. And they inquired of the Lord further. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, there he is hidden among the equipment. I'm not ready for this. I'm not, God said, well, you're, you're called and I have equipped you. I'm going to do the work in you. And yet Saul couldn't grasp that. And so we see that Samuel comes and says, when you were little in your own eyes, when you were humble, were you not the head of the tribes? When you were humble, God gave you a role to glorify him. And didn't the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Didn't he give you a position? And now, verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission. Now, keep in mind that he makes these two statements again. Didn't God make you king over Israel? And then God sends you on a mission. Now, remember there at verse 1, we already looked at that where he said, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the word of the Lord. My word was good there. My word should be good now. And just as God had made you king then the same word, the, the same God who gave the word to make you king also gave the word to send you on a mission. And the mission was his. I will punish Amalek. This is God. So as he goes through, he then makes a statement after he says at the end of verse 17, did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission. Same thing as verse 1. Now he says this, go utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. This is God in verse 2, I will punish Amalek. I need you to utterly wipe out the sinners. I need you to, to make sure that they are consumed, that they are wiped out. Every part of their sin, in the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah, wipe it all out. Make it nothing. Ashes, that's all I want. And so his job was to destroy them because they'd sinned. They should have been family. They, they picked at the weak ones. They had a war with them. Of course, they, they lost that war, but constantly they were not being that type of family, loving their brother as God called them to. And so he said, you should have destroyed them. And then in verse 19, what Samuel asked of Saul is this. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Why did you keep the best? Now, now keep in mind that what? Agag is part of that spoil. Agag is part of it. He was, he was the initial best of the best. And then the animals and the people followed his example. And so what, what Saul says is this. Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Now, isn't this amazing that he's there making a statement? He says, I have brought back Agag. 
when did God said bring him back? He said utterly destroy. And his mind can't even recognize the sin that he's in. He is so justified a compromise that he can't even see it as a sin. Isn't that what's dangerous as a Christian? When God says utterly get rid of this in your life and you compromise it, and you compromise it, and you compromise it, and you get so used to compromising it that you no longer see it as a sin. But God still does. And God still sees it as incomplete obedience. And so he he makes a statement, and and I I just find it amazing that in the first part of verse 20, he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've obeyed. I've done what he called me to do, and I brought back Agag. He didn't tell you to bring back Agag. He said, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So keep in mind that the statement as a whole is false because he says, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. You have not because Agag is still there. And so you can't say, I've done what God called me to do when you're just saying, and I brought him back. So bringing him back isn't utterly destroying. Verse 21, but the people took the plunder and the sheep and the oxen and the best things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now, this is amazing. Do you understand? He said, I am right on. But the people, again, the people took of the plunder of which should have been utterly destroyed. Now, Saul is is kind of playing innocent here. I want to just bring your attention back to 1 Samuel chapter 14 for just a second. And what I want you to do is this. I want you to take a look at verse 24 through 26, just just for a moment here. And I want you to see the authority that Saul has over his people. In 1 Samuel 14, verse 24, the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is any man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, so none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Do you understand? He says, cursed is any man. And so at this point, the people were faint. And so the one person that ate of food was his son, Jonathan, dipped the end of his spear into honeycomb, ate a little bit, his countenance brightened. And Saul was willing to do what? Put him to death. You're going to die. You you, you broke my oath. You broke the curse. You are going to die. Do you understand? No one else. They were all terrified to break the oath. So do you understand that if one moment everyone can be terrified and the next no one's terrified? What's your leadership? What are you doing? Well, you've taught them it's okay to take of the best until you get what? Until you get busted. And as soon as you get busted, it sounds like a really good idea. Yeah, let's take the best and offer them to the Lord. You understand you're taking the best of what is vile. You're taking the best of what is despised. You're taking the best of what is worthless. Do you understand? There is no best in despised and worthless. It's despised and worthless. All of it is to God. He says, you need to destroy it. Don't bring it back to me and offer it to me. Offer this worthless piece of meat, these despised animals because they belong to Amalek. 
utterly destroy everything. None of it is good. None of it is worthy in my eyes. Not even what you think is the best. And so, he says, the people took of the plunder, the sheep, the ox, and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And again, make that note. He says it's the Lord your God. Not, not the Lord our God, the Lord my God. He sees it as the Lord your God. So Samuel says, as the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He says, what does God want more? Does he want burnt sacrifices? Or does he want obedience? Do you understand that even the burnt sacrifices were what? They had to be of a clean animal. But when God says all these animals are despised and worthless, there are no clean animals. Even though you say, well, it's clean. No, it's not because it belonged to the Amalekites. Thus, it is deemed worthless and despised. And now we see this. When he asked the question, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the fatter rams. And now he tells Saul this important truth, verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. He said, you weren't obedient. And God, God has no delight in what these sacrifices are. You want to offer them to you. And it's like, okay, why don't you offer me something unclean? Why don't you offer you know, to me an unclean animal? Just sacrifice pigs on the altar, would you? Would you do that to God? No, why? Because it's unclean. Everything here is unclean. You, you bring and say, yeah, you know what? I think a pig would be good for you today, Lord. Today it's good because it's a good pig. There is no good pigs. And thus there's nothing that's good that belongs to the Malachites. So as he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. Now, this is the second time that he's spoken this, that no longer do you have the favor of God. And he says, now you are rejected. And, and so keep in mind that as he's being rejected, Saul, verse 24, said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Isn't that amazing? Did he really fear? What was he afraid of, that they were going to stone him? The, the issue being is, is he's trying to make a compromise. And he says, I have sinned, and it's not my fault that I sinned. It's the people's fault. They wanted to do this, and I was afraid of them. And again, he's, he's not pointing out the reality of, of who is the sinner here. And as he goes through this, I want you to recognize what God is declaring as he says, listen, I feared the people, and, 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 and I obeyed their voice. Think about this. Fear God, fear people. Where should that weigh out on the scale? Fear God, fear people. Well, I fear the people, so I don't fear God. Understand that you're the king. You, you let him know this is God's will. And if you would have not taken anything, sparing the best of the people, if you would have wiped out Agag, and if the people would have said, how about this oxen? Kill the oxen. How about the sheep? Kill the sheep. You kill everything. If the people want it, you still have to be obedient. How do we know this? Well, eventually we're going to see Samuel step up to the plate. 
And as we look to this, I want you to see, he said, I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Keep in mind, what is this worship entailing? He says, I'm sorry, I sinned. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, this is a question. What is this worship going to look like? Think about it for just a moment. What is the worship going to look like? How do people at this point worship God? One way, sacrifices. Come back and let's worship the Lord. Uh, what are you going to sacrifice? Well, you would not believe this, but we got some amazing sheep and amazing. I've already told you that they're worthless. I already told you. What are you really going to sacrifice? You can't worship God with these animals. You're now saying, I've told you it's bad. Come on and join me in this. Samuel can't participate in that. Absolutely. He comes and he says, I I pardon my sin and come with me. Pardon my sin and come along my side that I may worship the Lord. You you still don't get it. You still want to sacrifice these these worthless and despised animals that belong to Agag that should have been destroyed. And Samuel now in verse 26 makes this statement, I will not return with you. Do you understand? Come back and worship. Come back and and sacrifice these animals. (laughs) I'm not going to return to sacrifice these animals. They're not clean before the Lord. They're despised and rejected. And so he says, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Guess what? You're still thinking they're good. You're still thinking that in your eyes, not God's eyes. Remember what God said. I will punish Amalek. It's my plan. It's my heart. Do what I've called you to do. As he comes in, he makes a statement, and I think it's just so important, where in verse 26 is, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. Again, he makes that statement. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and he tore it. He grabbed onto the robe and he just tore it. He, he's got this rag in his hand now. That's all he has is a piece of cloth from Samuel's robe. And as Samuel now has this this robe ripped and that piece of rag in Saul's hand, Samuel said that the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than yours. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And then he... Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. That's so amazing. He still doesn't get it. Now, what happens is this, and I want you to recognize what Saul is beginning to do and what Samuel portrays within his mind, that Saul grabbed onto the robe so tight that all that was left in his hand was a portion of the robe and he grabs on so tight that he rips it and as he rips it what happens is this that all of a sudden he's holding on so tight to this cloth that it becomes worthless now it's not no longer a robe it's a rag but this what samuel says is the 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 mindset saul you're going to hold on so tight to the kingdom 
and you're not going to let it go, guess what? The kingdom is going to become worthless in your hands. And, and, and it's going to go down and go down and go down. And guess what? Saul, his whole mindset was, I got to take out David. I got to take out David. I got to take out David. And guess what? And he never had victory over the Philistines. In fact, they eventually kill him. He, he, he couldn't focus on the Philistines because he was so focused on the kingdom. And keep in mind, it wasn't his kingdom. It was God's. God is going to give it to whom he wants, when he wants, to the length of time that he wants. And he's going to move it to the next person. Keep in mind, Moses didn't bring the children of Israel into the promised land. Joshua did. Moses is in. Move on. Next guy. And what God does is he will raise up someone who's faithful to him when the person that's ruling no longer is faithful. And so he makes that statement. He grabs the robe. He says, it's the same way of you holding on too tight for the kingdom. It's become nothing. It's become worthless in your hand. It's torn from you. And then he makes this statement in verse 29. Also, the strength of Israel will not lie or or relent. You understand when he says the strength of Israel is what? It's not you, Saul. It's not me, Samuel. It's what? It's the Lord. He is the strength of Israel. We are simply vessels. Do you understand who needed to destroy the Amalekites? Well, God showed us in Exodus 17 it was a spiritual battle. God is the one who's going to do it as the people seek his heart. Same way with with Saul, but he didn't look to the Lord. And so at this point in verse 30, he says, I've sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people, before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He simply says, listen, I want you to know I've sinned, but please don't let the people see me as a sinner. I am, I am not a good individual, but let the people still see me as a good individual. It's absolutely amazing. He still needs the accolades. He still needs people to lift him up. And at this point, he says, okay, I've sinned. I've sinned between you and me. I'm good. I mean, you know it, but don't let the people know it. Honor me now. And you know what? Absolutely amazing, the grace of God, because he should have walked away. But look at what happened. Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, here to me. Now, he's there before Saul, and he's there before the people of Israel. And in verse 32, he says, bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And so as he comes, he's thinking, all right, I don't know what this old guy's going to do. This young king, he spared me. What's this old prophet guy going to do? Well, at this point, take a look at what this old prophet guy is going to do. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hacked. Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. I want you to understand the the, the power of that statement. What Samuel does is when he brings Agag out, he cuts him in pieces and note this says before the Lord. You understand what, what he's doing? He's not doing it for Saul. He's not doing it for the people of Israel. Why? Because God said, I will punish Amalek. So who does he do it to? He does it before the Lord. It's not about anyone else has to pay attention. Anyone else has to be there. Anyone else has to look look at what Samuel does. He does it before the Lord. 
And you don't have to have witnesses. You don't have to have somebody recognizing what you're doing. You don't have to build a monument to yourself. Look at what I've done. They, they should put my name and my plaque there at the church said, this is what I've done. This is what I've accomplished. And absolutely, do we really do that? And we don't. It's about God and only about God. And we do it before the Lord. And this is why we do kind of what we do here. We don't do it for, for, for boasting. We don't do it for the, the fact that we can tell people this is how we do it. But you guys know that for over 20 years from, from day one, we've never once passed a plate. Never once. It doesn't mean that it's, it's, we're righteous because we've never done it. We just do it because, well, what does God call it? Well, God never passed a plate anywhere in Scripture. But there was a box before the temple, and just as there's a box out there. And, and people eventually, they, they come for, for months and months and say, when are you going to pass the plate? <laughs> we're not. We're not. But if you want to give, if you want to worship, we make that type of worship available to you. There's a box right out there. Now, when people pass a plate, it's amazing that other people are saying, ooh, look at what he put in the plate. Look at what he put in the plate. And, and, and it, it, it's to be seen. But, but when, you, when you're putting in the boxes, you walk in the sanctuary, nobody knows. Nobody pays attention. And I think this is what's so important is when you do it, you do it before the Lord and only before the Lord. And then notice what happens. Once he took care of that business, it says this, verse 34, Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. And nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God recognizes my people could have had me. And if they couldn't have me, let them have a king after my heart. But they didn't. I gave him a king after their heart. And he understands the state of the people. They're not getting what they could. They're not getting me. But, but, but Samuel mourned. Samuel mourned. Samuel was grieving to say, oh my goodness, here's the king. And, and, and it's the king that people wanted, but it wasn't. It wasn't of God. And, and he still is seeking the best for the people. And I just love the fact that, you know, when we see this, Saul is not going to step down yet. He's still going to reign for about 20 years. He's not going to give away the kingdom. He's going to hold it tight in his hand. It's going to become a rag in his hand. Just like grabbing onto Saul's robe, he's going to just grab it tight and not let it go. But it's worthless. It's worthless in your hand now. I don't care how hold, how tight you hold it. Let it go. It's God's. And if God wants to take it from your hand and give it to someone else like God, just be a steward of what is his. And I, I, but I love the fact that Samuel, Samuel, you see his heart like God. He mourns, he mourns, he mourns that the people of Israel don't have the best. And that's what he wants. I want you to have the best. That's what I want. I want you to have the best. So I don't tell you to come to me. Where did I tell you? Go to Jesus. <laughs> don't go to me. I, I, I'm, I'm nothing. Go to him. He's everything. He will guide you. He will lead you. He will empower you. He will bless you. As you what? As you keep his commandments. As you love as he loved. These are the hearts of God. And so with that, it was just, a, I just love this chapter. I love what God showed. And so next week, we're going to just jump into verse 16. Father, we are so grateful, or chapter 16. Father, we're so grateful that you've led us into this passage. And we've seen the, 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 the king the people wanted. And the king the people wanted was truly always wanting to look good in the eyes of the people. That's all he wanted. He didn't care about obedience. He didn't care about, about how people would see him if they disagreed. But you called him to obey and he chose not to. 
because he wanted to look good in the eyes of the people, wanted monuments to himself. And amazingly, David only wanted you to look good. (laughs) That's why you chose him. That's why you'd give him the kingdom. And so we're so grateful for these lessons that you're teaching us. And Father, any part of Saul that's in us, any part of incomplete obedience that we look to it and we kind of justify it, we say, yeah, this isn't so bad. It's still good enough for you, Lord. Those parts of us, Lord, help us to recognize your heart. Help us to recognize that if it's sin in our life, it is worthless and despised. We don't want that. So we give it to you fully, completely. We, we, we cut it away fully and completely because it's yours will. It's your word that we do so. So knit us to your heart. Give us the power through your spirit and your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen.